After I had finished, Mr. Gilbert Tennant gave a word of exhortation to confirm what had been delivered. At the end of his discourse, we sung a psalm and then dismissed the people with a blessing. Oh, that the Lord may say amen to it. After our exercises were over, we went to old Mr. Tennant, who entertained us like one of the ancient patriarchs. For more information, William Tennant was the founder of the Log College. Gilbert and William Tennant, Jr. were his sons, and they were all pious Christians and great evangelists. I continue Whitfield's journals at this time. His wife seemed to me like Elizabeth, and he like Zechariah. Both as far as I can find, walking all the ordinances and commandments of the Lord, blameless. Though God was pleased to humble my soul, so that I was obliged to retire for a while, yet we had sweet communion with each other, and spent the evening in concerning what measures had best been taken for promoting our dear Lord's kingdom. It happens very providentially that Mr. Tennant and his brethren are appointed to be a presbytery by the Senate, so that they intend breeding up gracious youth and sending them out from time to time into our Lord's vineyard. Philadelphia, November 25th. After I had done preaching, a young gentleman, once a minister of the Church of England, but now secretary to Mr. Penn, stood up with a loud voice and warned the people against the doctrine I had been delivering, urging that there was no such term as imputed righteousness in Holy Scriptures, that such a doctrine put a stop to all goodness, that we were to be judged for our good works and obedience, and were commanded to do and live. When he had ended, I denied his first proposition, and brought a text to prove an imputed righteousness was a scriptural expression, but thinking the church was an improper place for disputation, I said no more at that time. The portion of scripture appointed for the epistle was Jeremiah 23, wherein were these words, The Lord our righteousness. Upon these I discoursed in the afternoon, and showed how the Lord Jesus was to be our whole righteousness, proved how the contrary doctrine overthrew divine revelation, answered the objections that were made against the doctrine of an imputed righteousness, produced the articles of our church to illustrate it, and concluded with an exhortation to all to submit to Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The verses at the beginning of the chapter, out of which the text was taken, are very remarkable. Jeremiah 23, 1, 2, 3, 4. God was pleased to fulfill that promise in me, for blessed be his name, I was not dismayed. The word came with power. The church was thronged within and without, all wonderfully attentive, and many, as I was informed, convinced that the Lord Christ was our righteousness. Philadelphia, November 28th. Redeemed a little time before it was light to write a letter or two to my dear friends in England. I have not had a moment's time before since my return from New York. People are continually coming in and inquiring with strong crying and many tears how they must come to Christ. It grieves me to send them away with such short answers. I received the following letter from New York. Quote, R.D.S. I was heartily sorry that the disorder of a cold should hinder me from waiting upon you in the jerseys, but am in hopes it was ordered by divine providence for the best. I found the next day that you had left the town under a deep and universal concern. Many were greatly affected, and I hope abiding impressions are left upon some. Some that were before very loose and profligate look back with shame upon their past lives and conversations and seem resolved upon a thorough reformation. I mention these things to strengthen you in the blessed cause you are engaged in and support you under your abundant labors. When I heard so many were concerned for their eternal welfare, I appointed a lecture on Wednesday evening, though it was not an usual season. 
and though the warning was short, we had a numerous and attentive audience. In short, I cannot but hope your coming among us has been the means of awakening some among us to a serious sense of practical religion. It may be the beginning of a good work in this secure and simple place. Dear sir, let your prayers be joined with mine for this desirable blessing. I desire your prayers for me in particular, that I may be faithful in my master's work, that I may be an instrument in the hands of Christ of pulling down the strongholds of sin and Satan and building the Redeemer's kingdom in this place, and so on. Your affectionate brother, E. Pemberton. The year 1740, Whitfield, success in America, Charleston, Savannah, Philadelphia, Nottingham, Fogs Manor, Baskin Ridge, Boston, and more. Charleston, March 18th. I believe a good work has begun in many souls. Generally, every day several came to me telling with weeping eyes how God had been pleased to convince them by the word preached, and how desirous they were of laying hold on and having an interest in the complete and everlasting righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Numbers desired privately to converse with me. Invitations were given me from some of the adjacent villages, and people daily came to town more and more from their plantations to hear the word. The narrator will return to the Whitfield's journals in a moment, but I would like to read some biographies of some of the eminent men who were used in the 18th century during these revivals. Unfortunately, the author John Gillies does not include them in his book on revivals like he did the men of the 17th century. Therefore, therefore the following biographies are from my own personal library. Gilbert Tennant. Gilbert Tennant lived from February 5, 1703 to July 23, 1764. He was a Presbyterian clergyman. He was the eldest of the four sons of William, whom I mentioned before, who was the founder of the Log College. All the Tennants were educated by their father and entered the ministry. Of these, Gilbert and the second-born William were the most distinguished. Gilbert Tennant's early religious experience was a troubled one, but at length he was brought to a sense of saving conversion. Not convinced of his spiritual fitness for the ministry, however, he studied medicine for a year, but at length May 1725 presented himself to the Philadelphia Presbytery as a candidate for licensure and successfully passed the examination. In December of the same year, he was called to the church in Newcastle, Delaware, but after preaching there for a short time, left abruptly. Both the church and the Newcastle Presbytery complained of his action to the Synod, which administered a rebuke. About this time, he seems to have assisted his father in the newly established Log College, but in the fall of 1726, he accepted a call to New Brunswick, New Jersey, and was ordained there by the Philadelphia Presbytery. The inhabitants of this region, especially the Dutch, had been aroused by the evangelistic labors of the Dutch Reformed pastor Theodorus Jacobus Friedenhausen. But the English-speaking people were a sheep without a shepherd. Tennant's task was to gather them together and minister to them. Some of the Dutch gave encouragement by contributing to his support. Although Frelinghausen seems not to have been favorable to his coming, a warm friendship later sprang up between them. Frelinghausen permitted Tennant the use of the buildings in which the domain was accustomed to preach, and occasionally the two would address the same congregation, the one in Dutch and the other in English. Undoubtedly, Tennant's natural evangelistic tendencies were strengthened by this association. From the beginning of his ministry, his appearance, voice, and manner of preaching made a marked impression on his hearers, but he grieved that he could count so few converts. 
After a serious illness, during which Freeling Geisen wrote him an encouraging letter, his zeal increased. His searching examinations into the experiences of professing Christians, which brought him much unpopularity and abuse, convinced him that many of them had not been converted, and he now preached with great vividness on sin, retribution, repentance, and the need of conscious interchange. As a result, many were aroused to a more vital interest in religion, both in the region about New Brunswick and on Staten Island, where he also labored. As time went on, other ministers of his spirit, some of whom had had their zeal kindled by his father in the log college, settled in the vicinity. Thus the tenants and their associates became one with the sources of the Great Awakening, which had its consummation during the visit of George Whitfield to America in 1739 and 40. Upon his arrival in the Middle Colonies, Whitfield soon formed an intimate relationship with a tenant group. He visited New Brunswick and preached for Gilbert on November 13, 1739, recorded in his journal under that date. Here we were much refreshed with the company of Mr. Gilbert Tennant, an eminent dissenting minister. He and his associates are now the burning and shining lights of this part of America. Tennant accompanied him to New York, and Whitfield, hearing him preach there, wrote in his journal November 14th, Never before heard I such a searching sermon. He went to the bottom indeed and did not daub with untempered mortar. Hypocrites must either soon be converted or enraged at his preaching. He is a son of thunder, and I find doth not fear the faces of men. In the later summer and fall of 1739, Tennant made an evangelistic tour in South Jersey and westward into Maryland, his labors meeting with notable success. When in November 1740 Whitfield returned from New England, he was accompanied by Daniel Rogers, a tutor at Harvard, who brought to Tennant a message from several New England ministers requesting that he come thither and continue the great work which Whitfield had begun. Persuaded by Whitfield to accept, he reached Boston toward the middle of the following month. The effect of his preaching upon the masses was even greater than that of Whitfield. After Whitfield, wrote the Reverend Timothy Cutler in disgust, quote, came one tenant, a minister impudent and saucy, and told them all they were damned, damned, damned. This charmed them in the dreadfulest winter I ever saw. People wallowed in the snow night and day for the benefit of this beastly brain, end quote. The theme of his first sermon was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and during his stay he was unsparing in his condemnation of religious formalism. He brandished the terrors of God before the eyes of sinners, and he boldly summoned his hearers to repentance and newness of life. Those unfriendly to him ridiculed his personal appearance and unpolished manners. Some deplored the uncharitableness of his denunciations. The hard-headed cutler resented the financial loss to the city, declaring that Whitfield and Tennant carried more money out of these parts than the poor could be thankful for. But no one could deny the power of his preaching. One of the Boston ministers testified that about 600 persons concerned for their souls had visited him in three months' time. Another reported 1,000 or more. Before leaving New England, Tennant preached in some 20 other Massachusetts and Connecticut towns, almost always with like effect. He returned to the Middle Colony shortly before the meeting of the Synod at Philadelphia in May 1741, which occurred the famous schism. In the events leading up to this unfortunate occurrence, Tennant had played a prominent part. The ecclesiastical procedure of the more conservative majority of the Presbyterian associates and the sincerity of their religious pretensions as well had been attacked by him with unseemly virulence. These conservatives had had no deeply emotional religious experiences and attached little importance thereto. 
They were insistent that candidates for the ministry should be men of good character, of sound theology, and adequately trained, but they did not seek for evidences of their conversion and call. They placed emphasis on conformity to the standards rather than on essential orthodoxy and were inclined to enforce strict obedience to the decrees of the church. In the judgment of Tenet they were scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And since he felt it his duty to expose them and to awaken the church from its carnal security, it was inevitable that he should come into violent conflict with the Senate. In 1737, that body passed an act forbidding members of one presbytery to preach without formal invitation to a congregation within the bounds of another presbytery. In the heat of the revival, the evangelical group felt justified in disregarding this rule. In 1738, the synod passed a resolution to the effect that candidates for the ministry, before being taken on trial, must either present a diploma from some European or New England college, or a certificate of satisfactory scholarship from a committee of the synod. Tennant viewed the action as a blow at his father's log college, and also as tending to keep devout and capable men out of the ministry. The New Brunswick Presbytery, organized in 1738, of which Tennant was the leading spirit, ignored this requirement in the case of John Rowland, an alumnus of the Log College. At the meeting of the Synod in 1739, the Presbytery was adjudged to be very disorderly and admonished to avowed such action in the future. Tennant and others of the Presbytery then presented an apology for dissenting from two acts or new religious laws passed at the last session of the Synod. When the Synod met the following year, Tennant and Samuel Blair presented formal papers charging many of their brethren with unsoundness of some of the principal doctrines of Christianity and with being strangers to a knowledge of God in their hearts. When asked to name individuals and produce evidence, they admitted that they had not investigated the reports they had received or discussed the manner with those they condemned. Soon afterward, Tennant preaches notoriously abusive Nottingham Sermon printed under the title, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, considered in a sermon on Mark 6, 34, preached at Nottingham in Pennsylvania, March 8, Anno, 1739 and 40. This sermon, which vividly portrayed the majority of ministers as plastered hypocrites, having the form of godliness but not its power, was widely circulated and did much to precipitate the schism of 1741. At the Senate of that year, a written protest was offered by certain ministers and elders arranging the tenant party for disregarding the authority of the Senate and for other disturbing and unwarranted actions and denying the right of the offenders to sit in that judicatory. The outcome of the matter was that Tennant and the other members of the New Brunswick Presbytery, finding themselves in a minority, withdrew and a division of the Presbyterian Church occurred which lasted 17 years. Tennant immediately published remarks upon a protestation presented to the Synod of Philadelphia, June 1, 1741. Not long afterward, he made an attack upon the Moravians, preaching several sermons against them in New York, which were published under the title, The Necessity of Holding Fast the Truth, represented in three sermons. In 1743, he removed to Philadelphia to take charge of a newly organized Presbyterian church composed of Whitfield sympathizers. His career here, which lasted until his death, was less spectacular. He labored hard to build up his congregation and to secure funds for a church edifice. In his dress and in his manner of preaching, he became more conventional. 
As time went on, he displayed evidences of regret for his earlier contentiousness, working for a reunion of the Presbyterian Church and publishing in 1749 a humble, impartial essay upon the peace of Jerusalem. He was, however, a sturdy opponent of Quaker pacifism, in showing in 1748 two sermons entitled The Late Association for Defense and Courage or the Lawfulness of a Defensive War and The Late Association for Defense Farther Encouraged or Defensive War Defended and its consistency with true Christianity represented. His published discourses on other subjects were numerous. With the establishment of the College of New Jersey, he became one of its trustees and late in 1753 went to England with the Reverend Samuel Davies to solicit funds for the institution. His first wife died about 1740, and in 1741 he married Cornelia, widow of Matthew Clarkson. She died March 19, 1753, and subsequently he married Mrs. Sarah Spofford. Three children survived him. He was buried beneath the middle aisle of the Second Presbyterian Church, Philadelphia, but his body was later removed to the cemetery at Abington, Pennsylvania. Among the leaders of the Great Awakening, he ranks with Jonathan Edwards and Whitfield. Daniel Rowland Next to Whitfield, in apostolic might and faith and zeal, stands Daniel Rowland of Lenghetto. In natural boldness and energy of character, tempered with gentleness and love, he had few equals in the age in which he shone. In fervor of spirit, in singleness of eye and heart, in compassion for souls, he is marked out among a thousand. The success of his ministry was truly marvelous. He blazed like a torch in majestic brightness, illuminating the darkness of his native mountains. He went forth in the strength of his God, breasting storms of persecution, and carrying with him from valley to valley the glad tidings of salvation. The power of the Spirit seemed to follow his footsteps, and his words were like sharp arrows of the mighty. Multitudes flocked to hear him, and thousands owned him as their father in Christ. With a few such men, what might wells have been, what might it be now? With a few such men in our day and land, what might not Scotland be? An old man of much shrewdness, who had heard both George Whitfield and Daniel Rowland, was once asked by a friend as to the respective excellencies of the two mighty men. He gave judgment in favor of the latter. Whitfield, he thought, might have the greater power in arresting and alarming the unconverted, but Roland, he thought, excelled him in building up and comforting the children of God. His sermons were exact in method, and more replete with manner, as well as more impressive by reason of their edge and point. Whitfield's sermons might be forgotten. Roland's were graven at once for life upon the soul. Forty years after the death of the latter, his sermons and sayings were fresh in many memories. The former, it is said, at times lost his manner, when overpowered by the rush of feeling. Not so Daniel Roland. With increasing animation he seemed to gather new power and substance. His bursts of uncontrollable emotion were also outbreaks of manly thought and vigorous truth. But each had his peculiar gifts and excellencies, and both were singularly acknowledged by God in their different spheres. Philip Doddridge, 1702-1751, nonconformist divine, hymn writer, author of religious works, he was born in London, the twentieth and last child of Daniel Doddridge, a prosperous businessman, and his wife who was the daughter of John Bauman, a Lutheran preacher. Educated at an academy for dissenters at Leicestershire, he became a minister when he was twenty-one, and six years later was chosen by a general meeting of nonconformist ministers to conduct an academy established at Market Harborough. The academy was later moved to Northampton, 
where Doddridge also served as minister of an independent congregation, combining the duties of schoolmaster, preacher, reformer, and writer. Tall, slight, extremely nearsighted, and always in a delicate health, this dissenting preacher seems nevertheless to have been a man of zest and high spirits. His personal letters, of which a good many have been published, are frequently playful, particularly those addressed to female friends. Looking for a wife, Doddridge was jilted by one young woman, refused by another, and at the age of 28 married Miss Mercy Maris, with whom he seems to have been deeply in love all the rest of his life. Doddridge was a man of extraordinarily liberal temper, working in a period when to be liberal was to be unpopular. Both in his writing and in his preaching, he did more than any other man of his time to obliterate old party lines and unite nonconformists on a common religious ground. The work which best illustrates his religious gift is Arise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, published in 1745. In literary as well as spiritual quality, these powerful addresses are outstanding among 18th century writings of dissent. He was also the author of many well-known hymns modeled on the work of Isaac Watt. Doddridge's daughter later said, The orthodoxy my father taught his children was charity, and indeed this seems to have been the guiding principle of his own life. He gave untiringly of his energy and talent until his health broke, and he was sent by friends to Lisbon. There he died at the age of 49. Jonathan Edwards was also mightily used during these great awakenings and revivals in the 1700s. He lived from 1703 to 1758. Few individuals ever appeared in the Church of God who have merited and actually received higher tributes of respect than Jonathan Edwards. His intellectual powers were of no common order, and his industry in the cultivation of those powers is strongly marked in that wide extent of most important knowledge which he possessed. If we consider him as ranking with Hartley, Locke, and Bacon in a scale of intellect, we shall have little apprehension of his title to such distinction being disputed. His mighty mind grasped with ease those subjects at which others faltered. He saw truth almost intuitively, and was equally keen in the detection of error in all its varied shades. This distinguished man claims admiration not merely on the ground of uncommon strength of intellectual powers and intense application of mind, rewarded by proportionate acquirements, but also as a most humble and devoted servant of Christ, bringing all he had received into his service and living only to him. His soul was indeed a temple of the Holy Spirit, and his life uniformly manifested all the simplicity, purity, disinterestedness, and elevated character of the gospel of Christ. The glory of God was his supreme object, whether engaged in his devotional exercises, his studies, his social intercourse, the discharge of his public ministry, or in the publication of his writings. All inferior motives seem to have been without any discernible influence upon him. He entered fully into the expressive language of Paul, The love of Christ constraineth me. For me to live is Christ. His personal example will long instruct, excite, and encourage, and his writings will necessarily be most highly esteemed so long as the love of truth prevails. It has been justly observed the number of those men who have produced great and permanent changes in the character and condition of mankind and stamped their own image on the minds of succeeding generations is comparatively small. And even of this small number, the great body have been indebted for their superior efficiency, at least in part, to extraneous circumstances, while very few can ascribe it to the simple strength of their own intellect. Yet here and there an individual can be found who by his mere mental energy has changed the course of human thought and feeling, and led mankind onward in that new and better path which he had opened to their view. 
Such an individual was Jonathan Edwards, born in an obscure colony in the midst of a wilderness and educated at a seminary just commencing its existence, passing the better part of his life as a pastor of a frontier village and the the residue of an Indian missionary in a still humbler hamlet. He discovered and unfolded a system of the divine moral government So new, so clear, so full, that while at its first disclosure it needed no aid from its friends and feared no opposition from its enemies, it has at length constrained a reluctant world to bow in homage to its truth. Jonathan Edwards was born on the 5th of October, 1703, at Windsor, on the banks of the Connecticut. His father, the Reverend Timothy Edwards, was minister of that place about 60 years. He died in January 1758 in the 89th year of his age, not two months before this his only son. He was a man of great piety and usefulness. On November 6, 1694, he married Esther Stoddard, daughter of the Reverend and celebrated Solomon Stoddard of Northampton in the 23rd year of her age. They lived together in the married state about 63 years. Mrs. Edwards, our author's mother, was born June 2, 1672, and lived to about 90 years of age, some years after her son, a remarkable instance of the small decay of mental powers that so advanced in age. This venerable couple had 11 children, one son the subject of these memoirs, Jonathan Edwards, and 10 daughters, four of whom were older and six younger than himself. From the highly spiritual character and intellectual attainments of his parents, it might naturally be expected that his early education might be attended with no common advantages. This was a fact. Many were the prayers presented by parental affection that this only and beloved son might be filled with the Holy Spirit. From a child know the Holy Scriptures and be great in the sight of the Lord. They who thus fervently and constantly committed him to God manifested equal diligence in training him up for God. Prayer excited to exertion, and exertion again was encouraged by prayer. The domestic circle was a scene of supplication, and it was a scene of instruction. In the abode of such exemplary servants of God, instruction abounded. That which the eye saw, as well as that which the ear heard, formed a lesson. There was nothing in the example of those who taught to diminish the force of instruction. There was nothing in social habits which counteracted the lessons of wisdom and infused infused those principles which in after years produced a fruit of folly and sin. On the contrary, there was everything to enlarge, to purify, and to elevate the heart, and at the same time to train the mind to those exercises of thought from which alone imminent attainments can be expected. The faithful religious instructions of his parents rendered him when a child familiarly conversant with God and Christ, with his own character and duty, with the way of salvation and with the nature of that eternal life which begun on earth is perfected in heaven. Their prayers were not forgotten, and their efforts did not remain without effect. In the progress of childhood, he was in several instances the subject of strong religious impressions. This was particularly true some years before he went to college during a powerful revival of religion in his father's congregation. He and two other lads of his own age, who had the same feelings with themselves, erected a booth in a very retired spot in a swamp for an oratory and resorted to it regularly for social prayer. This continued for a long period, but the impressions ultimately disappeared and in his own view were followed by no permanent effects of a salutary nature. The precise period when he regarded himself as entering on a religious life, he nowhere mentions, nor has any record been found of the time when he made a public profession of religion. Even the church with which he became connected would not certainly be known were it not that on one occasion he alludes to himself as a member of the church in East Windsor. From various circumstances, it seems that the time of his uniting himself to it was not far from the time of his leaving college. 
of the views and feelings of his mind on this most important subject, both before and after this event, there is a most satisfactory and instructive account, which was found among his papers in his own handwriting, and which was written near twenty years afterwards for his own private benefit. It is as follows, quote, I had a variety of concerns and exercises about my soul from my childhood. But I had two more remarkable seasons of awakening before I met with that change by which I was brought to those new dispositions and that new sense of things that I have since had. The first time when I was a boy, some years before I went to college, about seven or eight years old, at a time of remarkable awakening in my father's congregation, I was then very much affected for many months and concerned about the things of religion and my soul's salvation, and was abundant in religious duties. I used to pray five times a day in secret and to spend much time in religious conversation with other boys, and used to meet with them to pray together. I experienced I know not what kind of delight in religion. My mind was much engaged in it and had much self-righteous pleasure, and it was my delight to abound in religious duties." I, with some of my schoolmates, joined together and built a booth in a swamp in a very retired spot for a place of prayer. And besides, I had particular secret places of my own in the woods where I used to retire by myself, and was from time to time much affected. My affection seemed to be lively and easily moved, and I seemed to be in my element when I engaged in religious duties. And I am ready to think many are deceived with such affections and such a kind of delight as I then had in religion and mistake it for grace." But in progress of time, my convictions and affections wore off, and I entirely lost all those affections and delights, and left off secret prayer, at least as to any constant preference of it, and returned like a dog to his vomit, and went on in the ways of sin. Indeed, I was at times very uneasy, especially towards the latter part of my time at college, when it, when it pleased God to seize me with pleurisy, in which he brought me nigh to the grave and shook me over the pit of hell. And yet it was not long after my recovery before I fell again into the old ways of sin. But God would not suffer me to go on with any quietness. I had great and violent inward struggles till after many conflicts with wicked inclinations, repeated resolutions and bonds that I laid myself under by a kind of vows to God. I was brought wholly to break off all former wicked ways and all ways of known outward sin and to apply myself to seek salvation and practice many religious duties but without that kind of affection and delight which I had formerly experienced. My concern now wrought more by inward struggles and conflicts and self-reflection. I made seeking my salvation the main business of my life, but yet it seems to me I sought it after a miserable manner, which has made, which has made me sometimes sense to question whether ever it issued in that which was saving, being ready to doubt whether such miserable seeking ever succeeded. I'm reading the memoirs of Jonathan Edwards at this time. And I continue. I was indeed brought to seek salvation in a manner that I never was before. I felt the Spirit to part with all things in the world for an interest in Christ. My concern continued and prevailed with many exercising thoughts and inward struggles, but yet it never seemed to be proper to express that concern by the name of terror. From my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased, living them eternally to perish and be everlastingly tormented in hell. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me, but I remember the time very well when I seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to this sovereignty of God and his justice and thus eternally disposing of men according to a sovereign pleasure. But I never could give an account of how or by what means I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time, nor a long time after, that there was any extraordinary influence of God's Spirit in it. 
but only that now I saw further, and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested on it, and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever found so much as the rising of an objection against it, in the most absolute sense, and God showing mercy to whom He will show mercy, and hardening whom He will. God's absolute sovereignty and justice with respect to salvation and damnation is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as, as, much as of anything that I see with my eyes. At least it is so at times. But I have often since that first conviction had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty than I had then. I have, I have often since had not only a conviction but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to honor and glory be forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul... And was, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to Him in heaven, and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself, and went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him, and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do, with a new sort of affection. But it never came into my thought that there was anything spiritual or of a saving nature in this. From about that time, I began to have a new kind of apprehension and idea of Christ and the work of redemption and the glorious way of salvation by Him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart. My soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. And my mind was greatly engaged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of His person, on the lovely way of salvation by free grace in Him. I found no book so delightful to me as those that treated of these subjects. Those words, Song of Solomon 2, 1, used to be abundantly with me. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. These words seem to me sweetly to represent the loveliness and beauty of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Canticles used to be pleasant to me. I used to be much in reading it about that time and found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplation. This I know not how to express otherwise than by a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world and sometimes a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ and wrapped up and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden kindle up as it were a sweet burning in my heart an ardour of soul that I know not how to express not long after I first began to experience these things I gave an account to my father of some things that had passed in my mind I was pretty much affected by the discourse we had together and when the discourse was ended I walked abroad alone in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation and as I was walking there and looking up upon the sky and clouds there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God as I know, as I know not how to express I seemed to see 
them both in a sweet conjunction, majesty and meekness, joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty, and also a majestic meekness, an awful sweetness, a high and great and holy gentleness. After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more and more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, His wisdom, His purity and love seemed to appear in everything, in the sun, moon and stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water and all nature which used, which used greatly to fix my mind. I've often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and in the day spend much time in viewing the clouds and sky, to behold the sweet glory of God in these things, in the meantime singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning, formerly nothing had been so terrible to me. Before I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder, and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising, but now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, if I may so speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm, and used to take the opportunity at such times to, to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunders, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural for me to sing or chant forth my meditations or to speak my, or to speak my thoughts in soliloquies with a singing voice. I felt then great satisfaction as to my good estate, but that did not content me. I had vehement longings of soul after God and Christ, and after more holiness, wherewith my heart seemed to be full and ready to break, which often brought to my mind the words of the psalmist, My soul breaketh for the longing it has. I often felt a mourning and lamenting in my heart that I had not turned to God sooner, that I might have had more time to grow in grace. My mind was greatly fixed on divine things, almost perpetually in the contemplation of them. I spent most of my time in thinking of divine things year after year, often walking alone in the woods in solitary places for meditation, soliloquy, and prayer, and converse with God. And it was always my manner at such times to sing forth my contemplations. I was almost constantly in ejaculatory prayer, wherever I was. Prayer seemed to be natural to me as a breath by which the inward burnings of my heart had vent. The delights which I now felt in the things of religion were of an exceedingly different kind from those before mentioned that I had when a boy, and what then I had no more notion of than one born blind has of pleasant and beautiful colors. They were of a more inward, pure, soul-animating and refreshing nature. Those former delights never reached a heart and did not arise from any sight of the divine excellency of the things of God or any taste of the soul-satisfying and life-giving good there is in them. My sense of divine things seemed gradually to increase till I went to preach at New York, which was about a year and a half after they began. And while I was there, I felt them very sensibly, in a much higher degree than I had done before. My longings after God and holiness were much increased. Pure and humble, holy and heavenly, Christianity appeared exceedingly amiable to me. I felt a burning desire to be in everything a complete Christian, and conform to the blessed image of Christ that I might live in all things according to the pure, sweet, and blessed rules of the gospel. I had an eager thirsting after progress in these things, which put me upon pursuing and pressing after them. It was my continual strife, day and night, and constant inquiry, how I should be 
be more holy and live more holily and more becoming a child of God and a disciple of Christ. And now, and now sought an increase of grace and holiness in a holy life with much more earnestness than ever I sought grace before I had it. I used to be continually examining myself and studying and contriving for likely ways and means how I should live holily with far greater diligence and earnestness than ever I pursued anything in my life, but yet with too great a dependence on my own strength, which afterwards proved a great damage to me. My experience had not then taught me as it has done since my extreme feebleness and impotence in every manner of way and the bottomless depths of secret corruption and deceit there was in my heart. However, I went on with my eager pursuit after more holiness and conformity to Christ. The heaven I desired was a heaven of holiness, to be with God and to spend my eternity in divine love and holy communion with Christ. My mind was very much taken up with contemplations on heaven and the enjoyments there, and living there in perfect holiness, humility, and love. And it used at that time to appear a great part of the happiness of heaven, that there the saints could express their love to Christ. It appeared to me a great clog and burden, that, when, that what I felt within I could not express as I desired. The inward ardour of my soul seemed to be hindered and pent up and could not freely flame out as it would. I often used to think how in heaven this principle should freely and fully vent and express itself. Heaven appeared exceedingly delightful as a world of love, that all happiness consisted in living in pure, humble, heavenly, divine love. I remember the thoughts I used then to have of holiness and said sometimes to myself, I do certainly know that I love holiness such as the gospel prescribes. It appeared to me that there was nothing in it but what was ravishingly lovely, the highest beauty and amiableness, a divine beauty, far purer than anything here upon earth, and that everything else is like mire and defilement in comparison of it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.